The song we just sang, Amazing Grace, it sings about the grace of Jesus Christ given to us, his people, not only in saving us, but then also, listen to this line, "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home." That's the line that we just sung from this much-beloved song, Amazing Grace, which speaks of the great hope that Christians have in our faithful God, in Jesus Christ, as the song says. There is grace that saves, that grace that sustains, and grace that secures us for what is to come, a grace that leads us home where we will dwell with Jesus Christ forever. In such times as these, as many may fear, as you yourself may fear. Doesn't this song help us remember that the Christian actually has something to look forward to on the other side of death? What is it called in this song here? It's called home. Grace will lead us home. What a good reminder that because of the hope that we have in Jesus, earthly death is not a period, right? Not a full stop to our lives but just a mere comma. And knowing that truth and then dwelling in that truth helps us remain steadfast for Jesus Christ, even in the worst of circumstances. It helps us remain steadfast for Christ, even in the worst of circumstances. I wonder if you, friend, need encouragement to be steadfast for Jesus Christ as we live our lives in this fallen world, this so imperfect, sinful world. Well, in our passage, we finish off what may be some of the most inspirational and encouraging personal words by, the, by Paul the Apostle, as he tells of this great and marvelous hope that he has in Jesus Christ, even in the worst of circumstances, the worst of situations. Our passage this morning is found in the book of 2 Timothy. I invite you to turn there with me now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you could simply search. Let's say you don't have a, a Bible, like a, a Bible, one with pages here in your hand. You can simply you know, look at your phone. You can search 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. 2 Timothy chapter 4, ESV, and uh, something useful. Some website will pop up where you can read along with me. Now, uh, as you turn there, this is a continuation from last week where we began looking at how the Christian can, once again, still be steadfast for Jesus Christ, even in the worst of situations. Last week, we saw, right, from Paul's example, Paul the Apostle called to preach the gospel and lay the very foundation of the church. We saw from his example that, yes, we can still have courage in Jesus Christ. We saw also that we can still be faithful in the worst of circumstances to Jesus Christ. And today, as we finish off chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, right, we're going to look at chapter, we're going to look at verse 8 today. As we finish this off, we see that even in the worst of circumstances, we can be faithful because of what is ahead, because of the reward that comes in Christ for all those who love him. We can be faithful once again. We can be steadfast to Jesus Christ in the worst of circumstances because of everything that is to come for the reward that is in Jesus Christ for those who love him. Now, now with all this talk about difficult circumstances, why we talk about this in the first place? Well, Paul the Apostle, who wrote this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, 
he was certainly experiencing these difficult circumstances, as, as some of you guys know, those of you who have joined us for, as we just simply walk through the book of 2 Timothy. We know that he was in difficult circumstances for being a Christian. He was persecuted by the Roman government for being a Christian. And Emperor Nero, the emperor of Rome in the mid-60s AD, he was on a rampage against Christians rounding them up, blaming them for things that they didn't even do. In fact, some blaming them for something that he himself did, set fire to the city of Rome. And persecution was very severe, very severe. Scores of Christians were dying in the most horrific of ways, being fed to live animals, beasts, also being lit up uh, into becoming human torches, basically. And Paul was experiencing this persecution. If you read this letter, if you were to just read this letter this afternoon, you'd, you'd read that and you'd hear that there's there suffering going on. He is bound with chains for the gospel, he says. And as we will soon see, he knew that his earthly life was coming to an end. He knew it. And then Timothy, the guy that he was writing this letter to, his son of the faith, Timothy himself was in these difficult circumstances as well. Certainly, he, he was a thousand miles plus away from the city of Rome. He was, he was pastoring a church in the city of Ephesus, which is a coastal city of modern-day Turkey. But nevertheless, one would think that maybe persecution would go throughout the Roman Empire, which he certainly was in the Roman Empire. And then to make things more challenging, there were problems coming from within the church. False teachers were rising up, teaching false things about Jesus. They were trying to lead people away. The book of 1 Timothy the book of 1 Timothy, another letter written by Paul to Timothy, it says there that these false teachers were preying on those who were vulnerable, just trying to line their pockets with the vulnerable's money. And Paul knew that ministering for Jesus Christ and to Christ's church was certainly hard labor. More generally, he knew that the Christian life, while good, right, while, while the Christian life is good, it nevertheless was a battle. And it came with very real challenges. Christ himself had warned his followers that to follow him, just repeating Christ's words here, follow him meant taking up your own cross and being prepared for suffering just as millions of Christians know today and have known in the past. And so in seeking to care for and to love his son in the faith, Timothy, in passing on the torch of ministry as Paul's imprisoned about to die, he writes encouraging him to fulfill your ministry. Preach the gospel. Serve Jesus Christ even in suffering. Again, we are finishing up the climax of this letter here. This letter to his son in the faith. And you see this in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4. But I'm going to actually start reading from verse 1 of chapter 4. Look there. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then here's our passage, these three verses that we're going to finish off today. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, 
I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you notice there, our passage is a personal example. Paul is Timothy's father in the faith, but ours as well if you are a Christian. How is it that we can be steadfast for Christ in suffering? Because of Christ's reward for those who love him. Because of Christ's reward for those who love him. Here's point number one if you're taking notes. Point number one, how can we remain steadfast in suffering? It's because of the reward that comes from Christ. Because of the reward that comes from Christ. Many people, Christians too, struggle with this. We think that de- we think about death as if it is a period, right? As if it is a period. Our lives, let's just say, speak metaphorically, our lives are the sentence, right? The sentence that goes on. And then death is the period that brings it to its full stop. Imagine how you might face the possibility of death, death itself. We saw last week, right? Paul is clearly facing death. Right, last week we looked at verse six. Look there, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, right? Sacrifice. He sees his spilling of his own blood as a sacrifice to God. And the time of my departure has come, he said. Right? If if death is a full stop to our lives, we might give in to great despair, right? We would give in to this despair and know, right? Our hope just doesn't go beyond this earthly life. And in many ways, our hopes just get buried in the dirt with our very own bodies. Hope never gets beyond the grave. You look there at verse 7, which also we looked at last week, and we just say, maybe with despair, if we had no hope, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. In fact, we might even think that the race isn't even, the, the fight isn't even good. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Right? But if we have no hope, all of that is meaningless. It's like, well, well, what point was all that for? Hope never goes beyond the grave if you have no hope in Jesus Christ. But did you notice, though, that right for Paul, hope is not limited by death. Hope isn't limited by death. On the other side of death, he knows, according to verse 8, which we look at today, on the other side of death is the laying hold of eternal hope in full, in its fullness. Right? If he thought that earthly life is all there is, then death would have, in fact, the last say. It'd be done, over, hopeless. And he wouldn't be able to do, he would not be able to do what he does, and he wouldn't be able to say what he says in verse 8. Did you notice there that Paul pivots? He pivots mentally, spiritually, in his heart from this earthly life to his future life with Jesus Christ. Right? He is not imprisoned by the bad circumstances of the present. Verse 6, looking at the death sentence, He's not imprisoned by that, nor is he preoccupied living, reliving in the successes or even reliving the failures of his own past. Verse 7. Instead, though, he pivots with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind to the future, right? Look again, verse 6. He's looking at the present. This is what's going on in the present. I'm done. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Verse 7 is the past. This is what's gone on in the past. I've I've finished. I'm done with this race. I have kept the faith. But then verse 8 is future. He says there, henceforth, and now 
And now you have this aspect of time here. And now, now that all that's done, now I pivot to what the Lord has in store for me in the future. You see how death to Paul, right, and to every Christian, death is just a comma. It's just a comma of his life with Jesus Christ. Death doesn't stop his life, but it actually moves him forward to laying hold of the reward in Christ in full. So thinking about application here, Christian, let me talk to you for a moment. How are you at pivoting, the action of pivoting? And then, and then not only think about the action, right, the thinking of it, the hoping, the longing for it. Do you even know what Christ wants you to pivot towards the content of all that is to come in the future? You know, many of us are tempted to live, and, and uh, many of us do live, as if the here and now is all there is. Jason made mention to it, of it earlier. Do you know how you know if you live as if this stuff here on earth is all that there is, it's when your earthly circumstances that you find yourself in robs you of your joy and hope. That's how you know. It's if your earthly circumstances robs you of your joy and hope, right? If Paul lived, right, for the here and now, right, he's out of hope, then earthly circumstances would have robbed him of his hope. I know regarding the events of our day, uh, the events here might be soul-sucking. It might be hope-dashing. When you read about COVID-19, the rising death toll once again, that's supposed to, in this next week, uh, be very large, at least in New York and uh, around other places in the United States. This is hope-dashing, soul-sucking. And then you experience fear and this anxiety. Perhaps you are facing some other difficult circumstance right now in your life. And hope and, and therefore faithfulness to Jesus Christ, you struggle with it. You know, your desire for him waxes and wanes depending on what it is that you go through. Well, in these situations, you know that you might live for the here and the now if you find it hard to pivot towards everything that Christ has in store for his people in the future. It could be because you've gotten a little too comfortable in the world that is perishing because of sin. That's what the Bible, how the Bible describes the world. You know, as we see sickness and as we see death and fear and the anxiety about everything that's going on, these are all reminders, right? They are useful reminders for, for everybody that the answer isn't found in the here and the now or in this physical world even, but in our creator, God. The very emotions that you, friend, might be experiencing of fear and anxiety, right? Those are like the alarms, the red alerts that go off saying, we can't actually find our hope here in this world. But we can in our creator, God, the one who made all things good at the beginning, as we spoke about last week. We know that it is only on account of man's sin that sin and death entered into the world. But God. God is the good God who made all things and declared everything to be good according to Genesis chapter 1, right? So know that man was the one to mess things up. It was because of man's sin that sin and death entered into the world. And so, friend, if you experience this fear and anxiety looking at bad circumstance, bad circumstances in the face, those are like the red alerts or the so-called homing beacons that direct us back to, that help us search and find the one who has all the answers. 
Friend, Christ calls us, if you're a Christian, to pivot. He calls us to pivot, to see our bad circumstances, to see things that are so clearly wrong in this world, to know that there is no hope in this world, and then to hope in him who makes all things new. That's what Romans 8, Romans 8 says. We are to trust in him who, who has every single answer for our fears and our anxieties. And we are to trust in him who will fulfill all of his promises to deliver once and for all. And so we are to live our lives now undergirded by that very hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the promise of life that is in him, as Paul has said earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. And this way, right, we won't be caught off guard or stopped in our tracks by difficult circumstances. In death, like Paul, we would go on to say, the time for my departure has come. We don't say that with despair. We just say it as a matter of fact. With Paul, we'd be able to say that by God's grace, like in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. Good because it's with, for Jesus and Christ is with me. And then, like Paul in verse 8, we'd be able to say and think and hope with him. And now, henceforth, henceforth, I will receive my crown from my Lord. What exactly is this hope? What exactly is this hope that he calls here this, this crown of righteousness? You look at what Paul says awaits him. It's right there in the passage. We want to stick our faces in the Bible because that's what we believe is God's revelation. What is God saying? What is it that Paul calls, says, awaits him? He says, it is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's verse 8 there. That's verse 8. Here Paul picks up again this language of this race of faith, right? The, the, the athletic or the Olympic games that, that he had already mentioned earlier in the letter. In chapter 2, verse 5, as Paul encourages Timothy, right, to count the cost of following Jesus, he says there, look, Timothy, an athlete, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So as you understand this crown and this athletic imagery, don't think of the king's crown that symbolizes a reign and a rule. Don't think of that necessarily. It's actually the athlete's wreath. The athlete's wreath. It's the prize that is like bestowed upon the head like a crown or bestowed upon the neck of the victor who runs so faithfully and finishes the race. Here is the race of faith for Christ. In these situations, you know that you might live for the here and now if you, Christian, find it hard to pivot towards all of that. All of that. This, this king's crown, or not the crown of rain, but the reward, the wreath of finishing this race for the victor, because that's exactly what Paul turns his mind towards. This wreath, though, this wreath is, is just a metaphor for what Christians will receive upon finishing the earthly race. It's just a metaphor. Just as the race is a metaphor for the Christian life, so the crown or this wreath is a metaphor for what is awarded to those who finish this earthly race. And to know what the metaphor of this wreath stands for, look how Paul describes the crown. It is not just a crown, not just a wreath. It is a crown of righteousness. It is a crown of righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, the crown is a crown of other things. Listen to this, James chapter 1, verse 12. It is called the crown of life. The crown of life. 
1 Peter 5, 4, it is called the crown of glory, the crown of glory. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 26 there, Paul says that the Christian who runs, he receives a crown or this wreath that is imperishable. So you see there in what's highlighted, what's highlighted there, if you receive the crown of life, you, are, you receive or you are brought into eternal life with Jesus Christ. If you receive the crown of glory, the crown of glory you receive or you are brought into the glory of Jesus Christ. If you run and receive a crown that is imperishable, you receive or are brought into the imperishability of Jesus Christ in eternal life. And so as we think again about our pastor today, verse 8, chapter 4, crown of righteousness. To receive the crown of righteousness, to be bestowed upon your head or placed around your neck the wreath of righteousness, you are brought into the righteousness of Christ and his rule. As I understand it, this is a really comprehensive term. Christians are brought into these, this established state of righteousness. We are brought into the kingdom of righteousness who is, that is ruled by the Lord, the righteous judge. That is what Paul calls him, Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. I'll come back to this in a moment. But let's think about why this would be hope-filled or encouraging to Paul here. I think it would be hugely encouraging for persecuted and suffering Christians living in this unrighteous world. Remember that it was the Christian, right? The Christians were the ones who were being unjustly accused of being unrighteous. They were the ones being unjustly persecuted and even murdered by the emperor. The highest court of man is declaring that all of these Christians are guilty for stuff they didn't even do. Paul himself was being persecuted even as he wrote this very letter. But what compelled Paul to faithfulness even in jail? What compelled him to faithfulness? What compelled Paul to faithfulness even in jail for Jesus Christ? What undergirded his service to the Lord and the hope that was to come? It is this reward. That's what the hope was. He knew he served not just an earthly king, right? He knew he served not just an earthly king, but the one who is the king of kings, Christ the Lord, the righteous judge. Here, this term, the righteous judge, it signifies, right? When Jesus called the righteous judge, it signifies the fact that he will come and establish his righteousness and his justice across his whole entire universe. It refers to him who will judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom once and for all. This is why Paul says what he says to Timothy in our passage there, right, which we read earlier, continue, continue in the ministry, fulfill your ministry, preach the word. Why is it? Even in the face of such difficult circumstances, because you, Timothy, and me, we serve the king of kings. Look there at 4.1. This is why Paul charges him. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, right? The Lord, the chosen one of God, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, that is his kingdom that is going to be established by him when he comes again to judge. This is the talking about the return of Jesus Christ. That's why he can encourage Timothy and know for himself that there is this hope to come. Because in Christ's appearing and his kingdom, we will, be, we will receive and be bestowed our crown of righteousness by our righteous king. Forget the emperor. Forget accusations. Forget the wrongful sentences for loving and serving this Jesus Christ. 
every one of those, every one of those accusations, every one of those wrongful circumstances, sentences would be overturned as we stand before the king in the highest courts of the universe. And there before God and all of his people who are holy and righteous in Jesus Christ, Paul and every Christian would be vindicated by their Lord who himself suffered unjustly while entrusting himself to his righteous father. This is an important aspect of God's end times righteousness. This is an important aspect of God's end times righteousness. Thinking again about this, this term righteousness, you know, as Christians, we are without a shadow of a doubt, we are right to think and to know that sinners can be declared righteous, right? Even though we're sinners, we can be declared righteous, counted righteous in Jesus Christ. We can be righteous before God by grace through faith in Jesus, not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is very clear that sinners can be justified, that we can stand before a holy God righteous. Of course, not by anything we do, but only because God himself has given us grace in Christ as we believe upon him. But what Paul has in mind in this end times righteousness that is to come, it affects us like, in two different ways. On a personal level, though you, Christian, have already been declared righteous once and for all in Christ, right? We've been forgiven of our sin. We've been cleared of our guilt, even though we're still sinners. Here, this end times righteousness, we get to look forward to the fact that in the future, we will not sin any longer. We won't sin any longer. And so this end times righteousness is something that is actually hoped for. Galatians 5.5, 5. it is something that is hoped for. And then in Philippians chapter 3, this letter that Paul writes there too, it is something, this end times righteousness is something that we will experience one day future. We're not perfect yet, but one day, one day, we will be completely righteous, free from sin, and we will be able to live fully and freely for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's on a personal level. But then on a kingdom level, this end times righteousness is something the righteous Christ once again will establish and usher in. He will bring in once and for all at his return. And we then will be brought into, we will be brought into the righteousness of the kingdom as Christ the righteous judge reigns in full. So what's the application here? Knowing what is to come in the future is to drive Christians to Christ-like living now. It is to drive Christians to Christ-like living now. Now, we've already seen this, but let's just review it in light of what is to come. You look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, right? What does Paul say there? Chapter 2, verse 22, he says there, so flee youthful passions and pursue, pursue what? It's interesting. Pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Those are all aspects of the kingdom. Perfectly exemplified and defined in Jesus Christ, who is these very things. This is what we are to do, and we are to do it along with all those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. You see that there? Knowing what is to come, as we call upon the name of the Lord, who is to come again, what are we to do? We are to flee sin and pursue the attributes of the kingdom. It's beautiful language there. Not only does it drive Christians to Christ-like living, it drives Christians to love and patience right now, to love and to be patient, even with our enemies. You look at what Paul says in 2.24, you look at 2.24, he calls Christians to patiently endure evil, 
He's talking to Timothy, talking to all the teachers of the church, and really all Christians. He's calling them to patiently endure evil. Not, not in a proud way, as in like, oh, man, you guys are evil people. No, he's, we're to do this patiently, enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Why? Why those things? It's because we, too, know what it's like to be sinners in need of God's grace. And he says there, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We love. We patiently endure evil, knowing that in our teaching, as we also, this is the third thing that the, the future what's to come in the future helps us to continue into. We're supposed to herald the gospel. We herald the gospel. We teach the gospel, knowing that God may grant all sorts of people, even false teachers, repentance, leading them to knowledge of the truth and salvation. Christian, this can be hard, especially when we've been accused of various things. You guys, I'm sure, know what it's like to be accused of various things. What do you do in that moment? You probably want to justify your own name. Clear your own name. Well, you see that if we trust that God is going to vindicate his own people, you know what happens? In trusting that God will do this according to his wisdom and all knowledge, it's then that we are freed to love for Christ's sake. It is then that we are freed to witness for Christ's sake. And it is then knowing that Christ will return again to bestow on all of his people their crown that he himself has laid up for them, we then are freed to suffer, even like Paul, to give up his very life as a sacrifice for Jesus Christ. We are freed to suffer if suffering should come our way because we know that vindication will come as Christ the righteous judge comes to judge the living and the dead. That is hope for the accused and the persecuted. And in fact, even if we back up a little bit, back up a little bit, that's hope for all Christians who suffer from sin and suffer in the effects of sin. It's only because of Jesus Christ that sin and that death and Satan were defeated on the cross. And so not only will his people be vindicated, but under his reign, there will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more weeping. And whether we suffer for the faith or suffer because of sin and sin's effects, like even the virus going on right now, Christ says that he will wipe away every single tear. This is the hope that Paul has, and it's the, it's the crown of righteousness that is not only for him, not only for him, look there, but for all who have loved his appearing. This brings us to point number two. This brings us here to point number two. This hope is not just for Paul. It is for all who have loved his appearing. Basically, what does that mean? To all who love him. This passage is obviously so hope-filled. This letter, in general, is so filled with hope as it speaks to the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. There, he's, Paul started talking about that in chapter 1, verse 1. And then here there is hope again in relation to Christ's return to bestow upon his people the crown of righteousness. But friends, it's important to note here that as you hear this, you've got to know that there are a lot of people who may want the wreath, but they don't really care to run for the king. Right? They want the king's wreath or the king's crown, but they pay no mind to the king. You, you might know somebody like this. In fact, you might actually be somebody like this. I've known people who claim Christianity, but when suffering for the faith comes, or suffering in general, Suffering in general, they all of a sudden back up. 
the attitude is, hey, I want the king's reward. But when when it comes to the king's suffering, heck no. I don't want that. I don't want that stuff. Right? That again, right there, that's a sign that we have loved this world more than Jesus Christ. And then this has all sorts of extensions, too. So, you know, if, if we experience suffering, then maybe all of a sudden we start saying that God is not good. He is not loving. He is not faithful. He is not kind. He is not steadfast in his love, not gracious, not merciful. That can actually happen when we want the king's reward, but don't care for the king himself. Others, for example, others, maybe they say, I, I want the king's reward, but hey, I don't need to submit to the king's will and his word. I want the king's reward, but I'm not going to submit to the king's will and word, right? The attitude is, I want the king's reward, but when, when it comes to the covenant promises that I have to enter into as I submit to the Lord, the king, no way. Too much effort, too much commitment. But friends, you see that taking provision without caring for the provider, it just doesn't work. Taking provision without caring about the provider and loving the provider just simply doesn't work. Can you imagine? Like, rather, That's a child saying, hey, I love the safety and security that my parents offer. I love their house. I love the bed that they provide, the food that they cook, the safety that I have underneath their roof, and the money that they give me. But just never mind those parents. Never mind those, those people, the ones who thought to provide all these things to begin with. Forget about them. For Paul, the crown, you see here, for Paul, the crown is inherently connected with love of the Lord. To receive the king's crown, he knows, is connected to loving the Lord. It's connected to submitting to the king. It's connected to running and fighting and entering into this battle, taking orders from the king. Who is the king? Who is the crown for? Who is eternal life for? It is for those who love the Lord. And so you see here, thinking back to verses 6 and verses 7, as he faces the death sentence, as he reviews and looks, looks at his past, knowing that he has finished this good fight. He has fought the good fight. Paul runs the race and looks forward to the king's reward because he loves the king. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's all about love for Christ who saves us by his grace and his mercy. Christians serve at the pleasure of the king. We seek to please the one who enlisted us, as Paul describes that earlier. We loved Christ's first appearance, his first appearance. We loved that one. And so we have loved, or another way to describe this or to translate this, is longed for. We have longed for already. We are doing it now. We're going to do it into the future. By God's grace, we have longed for his return. Picture Timothy, right, receiving this letter, being reminded, right, he has his own ministry. He has his own course to race. Paul calls him to that thing, and he reminds him that this reward is for not just Paul, but for all, for you too, Timothy, for you, Christian, for all who have loved, longed for. Christ's return. These are spirit-lifting words, especially in the face of persecution or suffering in general. Christian, I hope you realize that this hope is for you. I hope you realize that this hope is for you. Have you loved Christ's first appearing? I want you to think back to when you loved Christ's first appearing and, and as you love it now. And you, Christian, you love the Lord's humility 
as he considered you as he considered himself, right? As Christ, the eternal son, humbled himself and took on flesh and entered into our world to rescue us from sin and death, to give us pardon from sin so that we might know freeness and life with God. Do you know and love his righteousness as you look back on what Christ accomplished as he actively fought for you, Christian, so that he would be, so that he would be, remain perfect forever, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross, right? Think about when he fought for you as he resisted Satan's temptations in the desert and throughout his whole entire life so that he would be your substitute. Even though you are unrighteous, he, the righteous one, gave his life for the unrighteous. As you look back on Jesus Christ, do you love and know his steadfast love, right? As the king of glory gave himself over to be tortured and beaten by sinful men in order to save those very sinful men that he died for by hanging on a cross and dying the death of a criminal, the death that we all deserved for having rebelled against our creator. As you look back, to his cross, and then it was as, he, as he was laid in the grave, and then as he rose from the dead. Do you love his sovereign power? Do you love his sovereign power that brought victory as three days later, Christ rose from the grave, showing and proving all to all that death and the power of Satan was no more? And that sovereign power that he wielded to rise from the dead, he promises that because you have his spirit, that you too will be raised in him. Do you love him now as you know him as Savior? Do you love him as provider? As provider. The one who provides for rebels forgiveness and the righteousness we need to stand before the holy God. Even though he, even though we are unrighteous, do you love his righteousness? He clothes us. He provides for us his very own righteousness and justification. Do you love him as the one who provides rest? Do you love him as the one who provides rest, saying, He has said and you have answered, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then in our passage today, do you love him as the one who provides for his people in a great reward? At the end of our earthly lives, he brings us, he brings us into his righteous rule once and for all, where everything will be set right at his return. Loving your Christ and growing to love him more, you will, you will move, be moved to long for his appearing. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sin, you've trusted on him by faith, not by works, by grace alone, you love him. You love him then for what he did. You love him now for what he's done and what he is doing. You have longed for also his appearing. Can you imagine that day where everything that he has already started in us now, he will bring to completion then. All that he has promised for his people which we know now, we know eternal life now, but we will know it fully then. What he has promised, that we would serve him wholeheartedly, what we know now, 
We, we still struggle with sin, but we will know in future to the fullest. Where we might be accused and persecuted for Jesus. Where we might hear the earthly courts as they sentence, as they accuse, or our friends or our family even, as they might accuse wrongly. We will know the true verdict then as every single one of those accusations are overturned and God's people are vindicated. And even when it comes to our bodies, we know our breaking, we know our bodies are broken down. We know that the physical universe, right, it longs for, it groans for Christ's new creation. Well, what Christ has promised for his people, this new creation, what he's promised now, what has already begun in our souls as we have new hearts, we will know to the full in the future. That's hope even for Christians who struggle in their bodies and in their mind, which, which we all to some degree do. We will know God as Father to the full, where nothing would stand in, our, in between our relationship, not even our sin. We will know what it's like to live fully and freely in freedom, in forgiveness, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, where we love and run for and serve the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that as we live for Christ here on this earth, that we will, in fact, lose our earthly lives. We will lose our earthly lives one way or another. But Christ, here's this hope here in verse 8, Christ has already laid up for us. He has already laid up for us the crown of righteousness and the crown of glory and the crown of eternal life and the crown that is imperishable, which we will one day lay hold of on that day when he returns. And then we will enjoy him and his righteous rule forever. So may you, together with other Bible-believing Christians and the church, First Baptist Church, that he has placed you in, or maybe you're visiting with us and you know, he placed you in another church, may you, together with other Christians, fulfill your mission of being his ambassador here and now until that day. Not imprisoned by what you see in the future or the possible bad things, not caught up reliving the successes and the failures of the past, but instead just realizing that, yes, things will happen in this sinful world. By God's grace, I have come this far, and by God's grace, we will be brought home to be with Jesus Christ. As we conclude here, let me speak to those of you who are exploring Christianity, which we try to do every single week. You know how it is, right? Maybe you, maybe you claim to be a Christian. You know how it is that one truly loves, that you truly love the God of the Bible? It is whether you know God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about just knowing about it, knowing about God, knowing about Jesus Christ, knowing a little bit about the Bible. I'm talking about knowing Christ, knowing God for yourself. I'm talking about, right, firsthand experience when you know, right, that you are a sinner because all mankind has rebelled against the Creator. God made man to be in a relationship with him. We all said, buzz off. We don't really care about you. We're going to do what we want to do. That in its nature is sin. That's the definition of sin. We don't care about God. We're going to do what we want to. We determine what is good and what is bad for ourselves. Do you have firsthand knowledge and experience that that is you? That you are in need of salvation as, once again, we all are. That you, friend, owed a great debt to God for having sinned against him and that there is no way that you could pay off this debt. I'm going to talk about this debt uh, next week in this Easter Sunday 
live stream here. In relation to this debt, some have more desperation to pay it off. Or I should say some have more desperation, right, to pay off their lenders, the lenders that lent them the money to buy the home, the lenders that gave them the money for the car, that gave them money for you know, school tuition or whatever. Some people have more desperation to pay off earthly lenders than to get right with God, the Lord, the judge. Do you know that desperation, friend, to clear your debt with God? Do you know yourself personally that there is nothing you can do? No amount of good works can secure right standing with God or even add to right standing with God. Are you, friend, aware of your problem as a sinner and that you are in need of amazing grace, a gift of God? And then knowing your desperate situation, do you know then God's grace and mercy and love in Jesus Christ? Do you know those things, not just about them, but do you know them for yourselves? Have you looked to Christ, called out to him as Lord and Savior, and that he came to do what was impossible for you to do? Right To live that perfect life that I just explained earlier. And then to fulfill the law of God as we all were to live the righteous life. We all failed. We need a savior. We can't, man can't save man. But so we look to Christ, the God man. Do you look to Jesus Christ? And do you appreciate his love as he died the death that you, friend, deserved as your substitute? So that you yourself would not only be free, but free to live for Jesus Christ, free to live for the King. Do you know him as the one who took on your debt to God? Who takes on other people's debt? Christ does. Do you know him as the one who took on your debt and bound himself to the cross on behalf of your debt so that you would be free to love him and know him as Father? Do you know, friend, relief from sin? and guilt, and shame, because Christ bore it for you? Do you know freedom from the verdict of guilty? Do you know freedom from unrighteousness? Because we know that by, by grace through faith in Christ, we already have been declared righteous for those who turn from their sins and believe upon him. And now do you love and live for the Savior? loving all of the benefits to be received in Jesus Christ. And so you therefore want other people to know them and taste what you already feast on. If your answer is yes, then the promise of eternal life and the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of eternal life is for you. You have in fact loved his appearing and you will love his second appearing. You have longed for what he has promised. But if you don't know what I speak about, you can, in fact, know him yourself, personally, firsthand experience. Jesus says, if you repent of your sins and believe, it doesn't cost money. It doesn't require you to do X amount of good works. We heard from Jason as he read from the book of Revelation, come all who are thirsty and pay no money and receive the blessings of God, receive eternal salvation. How is it that you do it? Not by works, but by doing what? The only thing you can do but by casting your feet, casting yourself at his feet, knowing that he, well, he heartily receives all those who turn from their sins and believe on him. If you want to know him, if you want to know him, friend, let me encourage you to pray. Let me encourage you to pray. Pray that God would, in fact, open your eyes to see him for who he is and you for who you are. 
and that he would save you. Pray that he would do those things. And then also read his word, right? Everything that I've talked about comes from the Bible right here, either from our passage or from other passages in the Bible. Investigate the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself, but especially before you reject it. Know what it says and know it for yourself. Search the scriptures. You think about orphans, right? Just as orphans go to great lengths to know their earthly parents, just as orphans go to great lengths to know their earthly parents, so man, every man, every woman, every single person as a spiritual orphan, having already run away from God because we'd rather worship ourselves and do what we want, we ought to go to even greater lengths to know the very one who created us, to know the very one who made us to find satisfaction in him. And friends, if you want to talk more about anything you've heard today about this Christianity, let's talk. You can leave a comment down below in the video, or you can reach us at our website at First Baptist Church, FBC, Hacienda Heights. Dot org, which I think is also linked here on this page. If you have any questions, just go ahead and write it. Somebody from the church uh, will get in contact with you. And we want people to know more about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We want everyone to know Christ because apart from him, there is no eternal hope. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are such a gracious God. You are a patient God. We know, as your word says, that the first when you came the first time, you came to save. And every single day since then, you call your people to herald your good news. We, we know, Lord, that you stand with open arms, calling everybody, all of your created people, to repent of their sins and come back. It doesn't require money to be saved. It only requires humility and for us to acknowledge our great need and to see that you are, in fact, the Savior and King. God, in light of this passage, we thank you that there is such great hope for your people. We thank you that even though we may be discouraged, facing bad circumstances, Lord, you have laid up for us something that blows every blessing, all earthly blessings, away completely. Because we know that one day we will receive our eternal inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We thank you, too, that we know that you are keeping your people so that we would lay hold of this reward in Jesus Christ. As Christ himself, Lord Jesus, you are our reward, your righteousness, everything that you are, your established state of righteousness where we will know your righteousness, your justice, your love, your mercy, your grace, to the ends of the universe. We thank you, God, that we know the very definition of love. We know love because you first loved us in Christ. Help us love you more and love your future appearing all the more. In your name we pray, amen.